are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are back tonight with updates on CSAM 2023. So this is the California Society of Addiction Medicine Conference, which we just got back from last week. And we're going to just talk about some of the highlights and some of the new and emerging trends and substance use and treatment options that are out there. All right, Paula. So do you want to start us out with some of the things that you learned or some of the new things that were talked about? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the talks that, well, actually, this was the keynote speaker on one of the days, um, Dr. Anna Lemke, who is an amazing addiction psychiatrist out of Stanford. She actually just wrote a book. And she gave us a fascinating talk, um, basically about dopamine and about the uh, world that we live in, in terms of overstimulation and what's happening with, you know, digital devices, etc. So she talked a little bit about the pleasure pain balance and the opponent process mechanism where we kind of load up on dopamine enhancing activities, especially currently in the culture that we live in. So dopamine enhancing activities would be things like engaging in social media, gaming, eating chocolate, um, porn, uh, addiction, those things like you know, things like that. Um, and then what happens is if we do those things a lot, which we are doing, right, if we look at the data on how much adults and children and teens in this country, especially are engaging in social media and gaming, etc. We end up with some neuroadaptation, which is exactly what's happening when you have chronic substance use, right? So you have chronic substance use, you get neuroadaptation, which then leads to tolerance. Well, you end up with the same kind of thing with any of these other dopamine, um, dopaminergic activities. And she talks a little bit about this neuroadaptation leading to a change in your hedonic set point. Um, and this, you know, is based on some of the work of Dr. Um, uh, George Kube from the NIAAA and Dr. Nora Volkov um, of NIDA. And so when we get the hedonic set point adjusted in our systems because of these this overload of dopaminergic activities, we end up feeling less rewarded from simple things that otherwise would have increased our dopamine, like, you know, looking at the sunset or cuddling with a little kid or, you know, uh, petting your dog, etc. And so she introduces a concept that is called the plenty paradox, which is overabundance as a stressor. So we're in too, too much of a good thing, basically. And she calls it a mismatch between primitive wiring and current dope and the current dopamine rich ecosystem. Um, and she, she looks at some data. Um, around how richer countries, more affluent countries, and even more highly educated people actually score lower on happiness scales and have higher rates of suicide. So there's data to back this up, that the more we have, the more we have access to, the less happier we are, and actually the more reported um, incidences of major depressive disorder we have in suicide. So uh, Dr. Anna Lemke had a solution. She says that uh, her little three pronged solution is abstain, maintain, and seek out pain. 
And I thought this was interesting, Darlene, because there was kind of a rumble in the crowd, in it the really audience, is. when she talked about the solution, because she said abstain. Okay, first of all, you have to avoid highly dopaminergic, dopaminergic activities. Try and avoid the constant hit of your phone. Don't keep scrolling through Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is, to, you know, X or your news feed, your email, and try and just get away from things that always hit that dopamine center, right? Start trying to just enjoy and soak up the little things in life. Maintain is maintain that dopamine neutral state. And you have to do that by setting clear boundaries for yourself. And she talks about setting clear boundaries from digital devices and what that looks like for us. And I think as providers, we're especially guilty of having a lot of access to our devices because we have to. <laughs> We're on call all the time, et cetera. And then the <laughs> so third true. thing, right, was which caused a little bit of controversy. I could see people like frowning and saying, no way. As she talks about seek out pain and she goes into this in detail. And those of you interested in this should definitely seek out Dr. Lemke, read her book, but she talks about seek out pain. And that's a way of flipping the dopaminergic balance so that we're not always in pleasure state, but we're actually in pain state on purpose to flip that hedonic state. And things that have been proven to do that are meditation, things that are hard, meditation, exercise, especially hard, fast exercise, um, fasting, ice baths, um, things like that actually reset our dopaminergic tone. Public so, speaking. <laughs> public speaking. <laughs> right. So she calls that all hormesis. So she gave everyone a challenge there to go on a digital fast. She says she asks her patients to go on a digital fast for four weeks. Uh, but she asked everyone at the conference to go on a digital fast for 24 hours. And there was a lot of rumbling in the crowd. So that was a great talk by Dr. Lemke on dopamine fasting and how the current culture with all this input, all the time of social media, news, music, games, um, everything that we have right at our fingertips, Amazon, <laughs> you know, that it's actually really screwing <laughs> us up, bottom line. So it was that's my it was good. It yeah. was excellent. I loved it. <clears throat> excellent, excellent talk by Dr. Lemke. So that's my highlight for for that one morning. Yes, definitely really, really interesting. And of course, there were some really good talks on fentanyl. And that's, I don't know that you're going to go to any conferences without fentanyl, but we had two of them and I apologize. It was Dr. Dan Cicerone, and I'm probably pronouncing his name incorrectly, and Julio Meza, who did excellent talks on, you know, fentanyl and opiates combined. But a couple of the highlights, just remembering that all of this is when we are talking about fentanyl, it's illicit. It's coming from China. There were some really good graphics that when you, you know, you look at the world map and you just look at where's the source coming from, you you have maybe many different routes coming there, but their source is all coming from China. And he talked about the, he has, he's worked with this project that they call SYNC and they have been doing a lot of street surveillance of the substances being used. And it was a really actually fascinating research. And so he's from UC San Francisco. And if you can look up his research and it was interesting to just watch as he do, do these drug surveillance trends and just talked about the change of the street studies noted people's 
how they kind of saw these adulterants being like put into the heroin drug supply. And this is really from just interviewing substance users and their one responses to heroin. And then they were also reporting just the different colors in the heroin. And that was really kind of interesting because sometimes we don't get that direct report from our patients unless you ask. Like, what does what does your medicine look like? So color, they asked about things like color, intensity, onset, effect, duration of action. And typically you see this different like duration when you have like fentanyl involved and different sensations. Like sometimes fentanyl particularly can have can be quite unpredictable but people will sometimes describe anything from this like nodding effect this or this very sleepy to sometimes very initially stimulating and there's definitely these other things in this like they saw increased co-use obviously heroin cocaine and a lot of these street studies traditionally we were fairly familiar everyone's familiar that was when we first trained the speedball, heroin, cocaine, commonly used. Now the term goofball. Historically, that was what heroin and methamphetamine. And that was in the past unusual to see that. Obviously, that is becoming far more common. I, I you know, Paula, this is something we probably see frequently, especially I seem to see this in our incarcerated populations or those coming out. I don't know why that seems to be fairly common. And then talking about this, what we call this fourth wave of the epidemic, and that's our methamphetamine and fentanyl. And that combination is just increasing in prevalence. So those are just some really quick highlights. These are far more detailed, but really some interesting talks there. And then Paula, what's your next favorite? Awesome. Uh, well, I mean, they're all equally favorite, yes. uh, but next in order of my notes was this addiction, um, adolescent addiction medicine yeah. panel. There are several people on this panel. Actually, I don't even have their names. I apologize. We can put them in the show notes. But uh, basically, there's just a few key points um, that came across from this panel. And one is, you know, ACE scores really matter when it comes to adolescent substance use. So when you're thinking about prevention, especially if you're in primary care, or pediatrics, <clears throat> behavioral health, education, ACE scores or adverse childhood events really do contribute to uh, substance risk. So make sure that we're assessing for that. And then think about drug use in adolescence as a social identity. So it's not just the substance itself. It's just the whole social um that whole, whole dynamic. Social, yeah. Yes. Thank you. And so when we're treating someone for substance use in adolescence, we need to reintegrate them into pro-social sober settings to in order to have success. You can't just treat the child or the teen as an isolated human with their and get rid of the substance. It just doesn't work that way. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, another point is that ACT which is acceptance and commitment therapy has evidence for efficacy in adolescence, which, you know, I just have to say I'm a huge fan of ACT. Um, it's just an amazing therapeutic approach, I yeah. think, to everybody, actually. So um, remember that when you're referring your kids who have cannabis use disorder or alcohol use disorder, try and find a therapist who is skilled in ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. Also, you want to always include family-based approaches. And then you 
you want to make sure that when they go to treatment, if they need that level of care, that they have vocational and educational programs embedded in their treatment. So it's not rehabilitation for them, it's habilitation so that they're learning life skills and they're preparing to launch from their treatment program, whether it's IOP, PHP, or um, residential. Uh, and then the last thing that was actually very popular, I think, amongst the audience, was, um, there was a panel discussion on communication strategies with adolescents. Um, and I, this was very good. I think this is just good life skills, actually. But you know, they recommended establishing clear expectations with teens, um, showing you care, like why do you care about this topic and that you care about them. Um, establish yourself as a reliable source uh, of why you're talking about that. And then always address family history. Don't gloss over it. And if there is a family history of substance use, you want to acknowledge it because just as if there was a family history of type 1 diabetes or heart disease or celiac, you, you want to make sure you're always assessing for those things. You would do the same with substance use in families. You want to run through scenarios with kids. So if they're like, I know everything, don't talk to me. I'm not interested in this. You you know, kind of tease out the conversation with, well, tell me what would happen if you go to a party and someone just happens to offer you X, Y, or Z. Like, what would you say? Or would you leave? Or what if your friend started smoking or blah, 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 and go through these scenarios and have them give you what they would do because it helps bring them into a different part of their brain. Talk about resources for them so that it's the just in case you need resources, that way they have them. And then always come back to explaining why it's important. Make sure you're choosing a good time uh, to talk to adolescents and that you really listen to what that what they have to say as well. So I thought it was good. It was very, it was just a good overall. I, I thought it was a great panel. And I love the one key point you brought that up, Paula. Panelists recommended, yeah, they're the ex, they're they're the expert. Okay, they know all this. Okay, then you teach me. You tell yeah. me what you would do in this situation. Then, so mm -hmm. turn it back on them to engage them in their own care. So I think, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it really was. It was really great advice and really helpful because it's a really challenging and high risk population. Yeah, our next one, like like Paula said, they were all good. I don't want to put like. We're just kind of going in order, but not by any, but no particular like preference. We had a course by one of our own fantastic Dr. Javier Ballester. So because because he's been on our show before, <laughs> you heard him here first. <laughs> he gave he gave actually a couple different. He gave two different talks at the conference, but. The one he gave was on stimulants was really fascinating. So interesting points that he brought up and just remembering that methamphetamine is the third most common illegal substance use disorder after cannabis and opiates. And this was the data as of 2021. And all the treatments that we currently have are still considered off label as far as medication options but not forgetting, we've talked about this before, naltrexone, bupropion, mirtazapine. And then he went into really good evidence-based discussion on methylphenidate sustained release. This is still quite controversial. And yeah, you know, that got some response from the audience. Like, um, do you use stimulants? Do you, do you Are you using that to, to treat directly a stimulant use disorder? Are you using, and there was another talk on 
particular disorders and do you use stimulants in someone there? So there's more data supporting that there are some cases that you would use a stimulant in somebody who has a co-occurring mood disorder that supports that. So for instance, ADHD and a stimulant use disorder. But again, this is someone with good documentation, close follow-up and monitoring, but there can be some situations where that may be appropriate. But even, even both presenters that discussed these topics all agree that this may this is not always necessarily your first line, but this is something again in our toolbox. So I thought that was really interesting. Also discussed, you know, the the reasons where you start to, to consider that is give those consideration when you have heavy or sustained use. And I think it's important to define that. And he was really good about defining that greater than 10 days per month. Mm. And then Again, when you have that concurrent ADD diagnosis, that's when you'd maybe consider that. Mm-hmm. Then they did, he also discussed like cocaine that is increasing. It seemed like that kind of dipped down for a while, but we're having again an increase in cocaine use disorders. Pro, you know, bupropion has been proposed. We have even modafinil, but topiramate. And we went through some good studies on that. That is not one that I had heard as much about. So it was good to learn about that. There was this one was, you know, we had um, like the amphetamine 60 milligrams and the amphetamine plus topiramate. Those combinations, again, in that same, you know, context of evaluating appropriate patients. So that was very quick rundown through that. But a really interesting, it was, again, he did a fantastic job and very helpful going through the current research and data. All of those are can still considered off-label, but this is an increasing problem that we're seeing with our patients. Yeah, right. that's fascinating. We need we need that always, every single day, all day stimulants, right? Yes. So yeah, we this very good talk by, um, on cannabis by Dr. Alexander Young. So he talked about cannabis use disorders now as high as 21% in population surveys, according to the JAMA network, just barely released in 2023. So 21% of people actually meet the criteria for cannabis use disorder. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. 21% of users, sorry, <clears throat> not 21% of the population, but that's a lot. That's one in five people yeah. who use cannabis. And then in those people who do use cannabis right now, they're saying that 17% of them have a withdrawal syndrome. And, you know, I think we all see this, but people who use cannabis don't expect to have withdrawal and they often don't know what's going on when they stop using or they try to cut back and they don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that withdrawal will often last two weeks. Um, he talks about what the withdrawal looks like and it often is most manifest by depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Um, so educate your your patients and your clients and make sure that you're addressing it and that you give them some psychoeducation and that you give them the support that they need when they are going through cannabis withdrawal. Darlene, you and I in the see in the jail setting, I see a lot of people going through cannabis withdrawal yeah. in the jail. Um, so cannabis causes alterations in mood and, and um, he goes into some wonderful details on why that's so and why cannabis is such an interesting drug. It acts on so many of the neurotransmitters um, in the whole body, not just the brain. There's cannabinoid receptors all over the whole body. And it can really, it really can cause acute psychosis in some people. And it can contribute to schizophrenia. And he talks about how there's kind of a shared risks with schizophrenia. So people who 
are likely to develop schizophrenia are probably more likely to use cannabis and then vice versa. Cannabis users are actually indeed more likely to develop schizophrenia. So we don't want to um, forget about those risks because it's becoming so prevalent. And uh, I think societal views of it are just that it's completely harmless. And of course, it's not. So he talks about the treatment. If you have an intoxication state, um, and someone's agitated um, or you need to treat them, you can use benzodiazepines or antipsychotics. For withdrawal syndrome, there's really nothing um, that is targeted towards the withdrawal syndrome for cannabis. However, you can address each individual symptom. And again, I think education is helpful in just helping people navigate the time frame and knowing that they will feel better in two to three weeks. And then in terms of misuse or the um, use disorder, there's really mixed results on studies and there's no medications right now that are FDA approved, no medications that have really come to the forefront as things that are very helpful. But he does talk about the evidence around CBT, of course, good old CBT comes out and especially in younger populations in terms of changing our thinking and our behavior around using cannabis. And then he gave some really good information on harm reduction with cannabis, which I think is great because, you know, we use harm reduction talk all the time when it comes to opioids and now stimulants. But I think we neglect as addiction providers and as medical providers to talk to our clients about harm reduction when it comes to cannabis. And that includes women who may be uh, pregnant or breast feeding. But mm -hmm. certainly we want to educate those people who smoke cannabis about driving intoxicated, about the implications that it may have on their cognition, which may not be reversible, and about the way it can affect relationships because of emotional dampening. So just trying to reduce the harm, reduce the um, use of highly potent products and, uh, you know, the potency of cannabis is now just crazy. And he talks about that too. So very good talk. I encourage you to uh, re reference that. If you wanted to get some CME, you can buy the CSAM conference um, online. I think and watch all these afterwards. Yeah, really great, really good, succinct information. And then there was a great one on alcohol. This is never going away. We're <laughs> always going to encounter it. Your patients have, have used it misused it at some point. And this one was given by Barbara Mason, PhD. And I really liked, she pointed out, sometimes it feels like we've talked this to death, but I did like the way that she classified sometimes how we view like use. So she talked about looking at breaking it down into high versus low dose of alcohol use acute versus chronic administration of alcohol. So do we have daily versus binge and acute versus protracted withdrawal symptoms? And then that sometimes helps you guiding treatment. So that's why you're kind of putting them into those different buckets. And so that was a very interesting thing. And th these these statistics have not changed. I know we've mentioned them before in previous podcasts, but they are very sobering that less than 10% of people with an alcohol use disorder get any treatment and less than 4% of those who receive treatment of any kind are prescribed an FDA approved medication. Unlike the cannabis use disorder and stimulant use disorder that we just talked about where there are not any FDA approved medication, we have three FDA approved medications for alcohol use disorder but they're being highly underutilized. And I love this, like 
caption she used in her talk, like where it's like, okay, we've got the big purple gorilla in the room and nobody is talking about it. And as Paula and I were primarily first trained as family medicine doctors and then kind of morphed into addiction medicine doctors, but I still see, you know, still half my practice is still family medicine. I'll be honest, the majority of my alcohol use disorders that I treat are come out of my own practice. These are patients that are coming in with a another complaint. Their primary complaint is mm-hmm. not alcohol use disorder. So I I trust these statistics. I 100% agree that they are not, it's not being addressed, which is so terrible when it's so treatable. So sorry, I went off on my soapbox there for a minute. No, I like it. That's so, really, it's really good you know, because it means that, you know, the treatment of alcohol use disorder is not left to the specialists. I mean, no. it's really on everyone's front door. It's OB gynecologists see so much of this because yeah. they see women with hypertension and anxiety yeah. and insomnia and alcohol's at the is the underlying it, core yeah. or it's the result of untreated anxiety and insomnia yeah you know you could go through every single specialty i mean i think it's something like 80 to 90 percent of trauma services um, alcohol. are alcohol related yeah so yeah. whether you're a surgical specialty a medical specialty alcohol is the is the bread and butter i mean think about gastroenterology i mean come on give me a breath yeah. the only <laughs> the only specialty i could probably think of where this is not true is probably nephrology where diabetes is now their bread and butter because of diabetic nephropathy but but anyway, we could play that game another time. Like yeah. name the specialty that doesn't have alcohol <laughs> use disorders. I'm going to put that to our like our residents this and fellows. Is, they can no. they can play that. play that game. <laughs> They're lightning round. <laughs> so and yeah, and just a reminder to on the this is the APA practice guidelines. So naltrexone oral injectable or a camprosate. And prescribe them in patients who either, again, back to our harm reduction, who wish to cut down or stop drinking and and where there's no contraindications. So prescribe the medications. Disulfiram, or known as antabuse, is not considered first line. And sometimes that's the only thing patients are given. We still use it all the time. It still works. But that's usually sometimes an add-on. So think about that way. Antidepressants and benzodiazepines should not be used as treatment. That's a common thing that we'll see because it's like Paula just said, we see the anxiety. And so the people are just given that, but they are, you're not treating the underlying problem. And benzodiazepines should be used for withdrawal only. They should not be continued currently. We've been taught that by our mentors and different talks that it can actually be triggering for them to return to drinking. So that's really important. That was a really important point. And Paula, you just talked about this. Women have far more consequences from alcohol use. So they can, using smaller amounts for even shorter periods of time, they suffer more and more deleterious consequences from their alcohol use. And so those are just some statistics and then just some key points that we just need to remember. So I thought it was a really helpful and great talk. 
All right, Paul, I'm I'm putting it back to you. That's great. No, I love it. Okay, so actually, this is a good segue because from alcohol, we easily move over to the topic of sedative hypnotics. Uh, And so this is an excellent talk given by Dr. Christopher Blazes, who I actually, we were laughing because we were, Darlene and I were saying that we were trying to track him down after his talk to tell him that we had basically plagiarized his last talk. <laughs> when we did our benzodiazepine podcast episode, because uh, his his work is so great and his talks are his slides are excellent. <clears throat> so he gave a great talk talking. He reviewed the importance of understanding the relationship between GABA and glutamate, um, and why you need to understand this to understand why sedative hypnotics are so so effective, A, and B, so difficult to get off of. So, you know, GABA and glutamate, especially GABA, involved in 90% of all neurotransmitter function in the brain. And because of that, they work, right? They're very, very effective. The GABAergic system mm-hmm. is, is hugely powerful. He put a lot of effort into describing how marketing has made, over the over the decades, has made a huge impact on how society mm-hmm sees and uses benzodiazepines, right? Valium was mother's little helper in the 1970s and uh, phenobarbital before that. And uh, they are definitely not benign. The the statistics now show that many people use benzodiazepines. The prescribing ratio is two to one females, and about 36% of people using benzodiazepines are over the age of 65. So it's largely a female uh, medication use issue and an older population issue, which inherently has more risk associated with it because of the risk of dementia and falling, etc. And he said that 50%, this is an amazing statistic, 50% of chronic benzodiazepine users, this is just people who have been chronically prescribed benzodiazepines meet criteria for benzodiazepine use or sedative use mm. disorder. Okay. That's 50% of people. Uh, so just remember that when you ha- are re-signing your clonopin prescriptions <laughs> every month after month, that 50% of those people actually meet criteria for a use disorder. And um, it can happen in as short as a month of prescribing. So very, very quickly, you get that neuroadaptation. Uh, when we do our histories and you ask your patients when it started becoming a problem, that I hear that like it is, it is so quick. You're so yep. right. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks, it was great because he doesn't only talk about strict benzodiazepines. He talked about gabapentin. Now we have a whole podcast on gabapentin. In fact, it's one of our most popular podcasts, but um, gabapentin is an NMDA antagonist. So again, it really enhances the activity. Um, it decreases the activity of glutamate, right? Glutamate's excitatory. So gabapentin antagonizes MD- NMDA. And it's very it's still a risky drug. It increases the risk of overdose death. There's an increased risk of death by 60% with people who have both gabapentin and opioids on board. 60%. Um, and then he talks a little bit about the risks of Z drugs, uh, particularly, you know, Zolpidem, of course, because that's so used. And there was something I didn't know, and that is there's a documented increased risk of suicide in people who are prescribed Zolpidem. Uh, did you know that, Darlene? I didn't know that. Yeah. So he talked a lot about getting people, why getting people off of benzodiazepines is so difficult. 
difficult and you basically have three choices. Um, well, I mean, you have four choices. You can admit them to the hospital and he recommends admitting anybody to the hospital for inpatient management if they have a diazepam equivalent of 100 milligrams a day, which I actually really like having a hard number because sometimes it's really hard to know, like, should I put this person in the hospital? Can we do it outpatient? And there are a lot of factors that need to go into that decision because certainly I've had people who on as low a dose of like alprazolam 0.5 BID who have had the worst withdrawal syndrome inpatient that I've seen. And it's just because of duration and the fact that their brain's extremely vulnerable. So it's not always just a matter of what the quantity is of their benzo. But um, in terms of outpatient, you have the choice to either do a long, slow taper for those who don't have a use disorder which actually often doesn't work. <laughs> or you could switch to a long-acting benzodiazepine, so do a cross-taper. And of course, he referenced the work um, of Heather Ashton, which um, is famous and very valuable to look at her manual. Or the most recommended method, and he talked about this quite extensively, is to switch to an anti-epileptic drug and an alpha-adrenergic antagonist and to use that combination to help treat people's withdrawal symptoms. Um, so, for example, use oxcarbazepine and a clonidine patch or oxcarbazepine and guanfacine, um, and then make sure that they've got lots of support for a very protracted withdrawal syndrome. You're treating their anxiety, you're treating their insomnia, and expect to just be in the long haul for people. So again, very valuable clinical pearls. Um, we do go some into some of this in our previous benzodiazepine um, podcast episode. And again, it's because we uh, referenced Dr. Blas's uh, previous um, uh, presentations at CSAM. So, but it's very good. And it was great to listen to him again in person. Yes, thank you. And that's actually really funny because the next one that I was looking at was a panel speaking where Dr. Blazes spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Howell. And they were speaking about benzodiazepine sparing protocols for alcohol withdrawal. And th they were, well, of course, everyone knows Dr. Howell and they were amazing, but to have both of them were just a wealth of knowledge. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, because, but they talked about, of course, we've talked about this, the phenobarbital. This is where we learned our protocols was from Dr. Howell and oxcarbazepine and gabapentin. And Paula just talked about Dr. Blaze's clonidine using alpha-2 agonist. The patch works great. He did talk about, and this one was new to me. I haven't used this as much. So talking about guanfacine, because again, you can use really any alpha-2 agonist. It has a little bit more of an anxiolytic effect and less of the hypotension. So sometimes you get these like sometimes low body weight females are really skinny and they're already have pretty low blood pressure. And you're really worried, you know, about slapping a clonidine patch on them and especially on an outpatient basis and sending them home. So that might be something to consider, consider using some guanfacine. So that was some really helpful. And, you know, so when you're doing some of these ambulatory you know, possibly withdrawals and using some of these benzodiazepine. Most of these, again, if you're looking at the phenobarb or the oxcarbazepine, these are typically in a monitored setting, an IOP, an OTP, or an inpatient setting. But there are some protocols that we've talked about that can be used in outpatient, particularly like gabapentin. That was really interesting. 
really good. I but love it. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And such good clinical tips. Like I'm going to change yeah. my practice immediately actually to reflect that because I use clonidine every day. I'm going to use more guanfacine for that reason. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love these clinical tips. Yeah. All right. See? You can, um, there's always things you can learn. That's why we always. have to keep going. Okay, so this is the last update I have or the last little tip. And this was yeah. from a re, probably my favorite part of the whole conference um, was a harm reduction panel. Big surprise oh, yeah. that that was my favorite, but um, it was so good. It was really moving. And I really have to give my hat is off to CSAM because I think as a medical community, we are behind, we're behind by a long time and a long way the harm reduction movement as it has lived and grown as a grassroots effort out of the HIV epidemic and boots on the ground, people with lived and living experience helping each other. And we're just barely coming to the table and we need to acknowledge that we're newcomers to the table and we need to, we have a lot to learn. And I just want to say that CSAM brought this panel and they brought people who really um, know what they're talking about, including some people with lived experience. And one of the members of the panel, um, Soma Snake Oil, was someone with um, lived experience, living experience as a harm reductionist. She runs an organization for women, Syringe Exchange, and she's um, an active, you know, recently active drug user and sex worker. And she was really transparent. And I, I really appreciated that she was there in the space of like an academic medical conference, giving her perspective and giving her opinion. And I thought her opinion was very, very valuable. So um, that was wonderful. Maurice Bird is one of the therapists. He's a psychotherapist. He gave, um, you know, he he really talked about um, the principles of harm reduction. And I just thought there's nothing better than to just really surmise what he said. Um, he was just saying that harm reduction is any strategy that reduces the harm of risky behaviors, including the use of alcohol and drugs, without necessarily having the requirement of quitting those behaviors. And that when it comes to substance use, harm reduction focuses on safety first, and it doesn't judge people's choice to use alcohol or other drugs, and it's based on radical acceptance. And you know, the, he went over the principles of of harm reduction. And um, for those people new to harm reduction, I think it's important to to really listen to these because I thought these were just excellent. Um, and those of us who feel like we're working in harm reduction, it's, they're good reminders, right? And the principles are not all drug use is abuse or dependence, nor is it a disease, okay? So I think from a medical perspective, anyone who uses drugs is aberrant, right? It's always, yeah. it used to be listed in our medical record, drug abuse, substance abuse. But there are people who use drugs and they don't necessarily abuse them or they don't have tolerance and withdrawal or have a use disorder. So we need to remember that. And we need to be very careful by putting people into categories or labeling them um, because it, it puts harm on them and it prevents them from seeking other necessary services that they need, not only like traditional harm reduction services, but any interaction with the medical system. Okay, drug use and misuse are health issues, not legal or moral issues. Uh, I mean, we could talk about this for a day and a month. And January Riggin, who we had on our podcast before talking about sex trafficking and trafficked um, people, talks about this, that, you know, people do not seek care because they are demoralized and judged and medically traumatized. But really, drug use and misuse, we just have to, we do need to treat it as for the risk that they have and not be have it be moral um he drug users are people with problems not problem people um 
And I think that's something we just have to use per first person first language and yeah. change our mindset to that. And then to remember the principle that people use drugs for a reason. Um, and I think that's always good to remember too, that there's a reason why, and you need to ask why, um, why, why did this start? What does it do for you? Tell me what it does for you. And, and then that way you can lever what it's not doing for them and see if they want to make any change. Incremental change is normal and motivation is fluid. So we know this, this is true for all of us. We're all like this. Yeah. There are very few of us that just decide to do something and then just make a complete switch. So incremental change is progress. And we don't expect, like Mindy Vincent said, substance use treatments, the only kind of treatment that requires the outcome before the work is done. So we must take incremental change as what it is, celebrate it and encourage it. And remember that just because someone's not that motivated today, it doesn't mean they can't change their mind and vice versa. And then it's a collaborative, collaborative process model, not an outcome model. So it's what what's happening in the moment. There were many more things from that panel. Um, it was really, really great. And there's people doing wonderful work on the street and um, doing outreach. And and uh, I just love that. So love it. That is a fantastic end note. I think they did a great job. And it was really humbling for us to just hear the voices of the people who are out there, kind of the boots on the ground sometimes. Because they're really, they're really doing the hard work. Sometimes when we're having a bad day, I'm like, it's nothing like some of the people who are doing this kind of work. So my hat's really off to them. It's really amazing. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you. Thanks for a great yeah. conference. We had a lot of fun. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.